So the title of today's episode uh, is very important. It's actually a very important question for all of us who self-identify as Christians all across the planet. Now, when we call ourselves Christians, we are telling the rest of the world that we are identifying ourselves as disciples of Christ. Emphasis on the word disciple. That we are learning from Christ. We are learning to be Christ-like. This provides us with two responsibilities. First, we are to be a witness for Christ, spreading the gospel of the salvation he offers throughout the world. This comes straight out of the Great Commission, located in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And this brings up the second responsibility, which, when you think about it, is really our first responsibility. That second responsibility, or the second first responsibility, is that we are to pay careful and close attention to the actual teachings and ministry of Jesus. As disciples, students pursuant to the way, the truth, and the life of the Master, we can't grow to the point where we can properly share our faith with others and teach them about the ways of Christ if we don't fully know what it is He taught and why He taught it. Now, in the time of Jesus, which was the first century AD, the way that discipleship worked was fairly straightforward. The rabbi, or teacher, would go throughout his local area and teach, and as certain individuals showed an aptitude for learning, the rabbi would then uh, work more closely with them and disciple them. Similarly, Christ selected 12 men from various walks of life who were not training to become part of the religious elite. These men, called the Twelve, were selected because they had the potential to be relational. Now, before I go any further, I want to read through the passage that I'm I'm pulling from today, which is Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. And it says this, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city, and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they, Peter and John, arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, 
he offered them money and said, Give me all this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that you, that you, may, that you have said may happen to me. So that nothing you have said may happen to me. After that, they, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many Samaritan villages. Now, I want to back up just a little bit here. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he performed miracles. Some of these were answers to prayer. Uh, some of them were spur of the moment. Some of them were, uh, they just, it, they were planned out in advance. Uh, these miracles were extraordinary events that manifested in the physical world, but the effect was derived from the supernatural power that belonged to the Christ as the incarnation of God on earth. Miracles were widely believed in the ancient world. Here in the modern world, we get a little, uh, we tend to be a little skeptical of miracles, and we kind of misappropriate the word when something amazing happens, but it's not really truly a miracle. Uh, but when the Gospels were written, they were set against the backdrop of the Hellenistic or Greek and Jewish understanding of miracles, that they could be performed by virtuous people as a means of gaining notoriety. Uh, kind of like they were magic tricks of sorts. In fact, that's a very common, uh, a very common uh, held belief even now that you know, miracles are just kind of like a, it's God's magic trick. And personally, I love magic. I love watching a good magic show. Whether it's a hypnotist, a mentalist, or an illusionist, I get enthralled. Uh, I wanted to learn the art of stage magic, but it was because it was so fascinating for me. One of my favorite illusionists is Lance Burton. This guy is amazing. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's kind of funny. I bef now, some things I want to be clear about with today's talk. One, Jesus never performed miracles to garner notoriety or to entertain the people. He just wanted to teach them. They were simply extensions of his power as the Messiah. The second thing is, Jesus' miracles can be summed up in one of four categories. Faith and healing, or faith, healing, and cures, exorcisms, resurrection of the dead, and control over nature. Now, uh, and eventually, uh, well, in initially the, uh, the miracles were relegated only to Jesus. But eventually the, the apostles were able to perform them through the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, um, and and these and these miracles they weren't like a disappearing trick or a card trick or you know, some kind of mentalism, um, th uh, and they they were something else. Uh, they and not. 
I'm, I'm kind of getting a little tongue-tied here because this is, is one of those topics that can get really easily misunderstood. And I really wish I had kind of piggybacked off of my, my episode on prayer with this episode, but I didn't, and so here we go. Uh, like, like I said, miracles were widely believed during the first century. Guys like Simon the Sorcerer, from our passage in Acts, they attempted to use miracles, usually magic tricks, illusions, and mentalism, to make a name for themselves. If we look back at our passage from Acts chapter 8, that was exactly what Simon had been doing before Philip showed up in Samaria. Simon was the guy. He was the guy that the people would go to for a miracle. The guy that they went to in order to experience some level of connection to God. They went to him because they were searching for God, not knowing that God had already come to earth in search of them. Why is that? Well, let's look back at Samaria's history. Samaria, as I said in a previous episode on restoration, had been the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. The city fell during the exile and became colloquially known as the region of Samaria. Northern Israel had a huge epidemic of apostasy where they, where they rejected God and everything about God. And they moved into idol worship. And this continued all the way through the, uh, prior to the exile. And Simon and others like him had taken on practicing some of those pagan rituals and sorcery because ultimately they wanted to become well-known. They wanted to become famous. They wanted to become wealthy. And they had no inclination for the true things of God. Key word being true. So enter Philip the Apostle. He's left Jerusalem and arrives in Samaria. And he begins preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He began performing miracles. But unlike Simon, he wasn't out to make a name for himself. He was out to make a name for Jesus. He was simply helping people. So remember, you know, our, our key theme is love God, love people, serve the world. This is what he was doing. He was loving God by sharing the gospel with them. He was loving these people like a, like a true older brother, going back to my reference to the uh, prodigal son, uh, by inviting them into the family of God and, try, and, and saying, hey, Christ is the, the way to get restored to God. And he was, he was loving people and serving them by helping them. And this is what true missionary work is. True missionary work is going into a situation and seeing where there's a need and trying to help meet that need. That's what true missionary work is. It's not about tracting and going door to door. Most of the time, people aren't going to listen to you. They're not going to talk to you about faith matters or spiritual things or, or religion because they don't know you. They're not going to be open to that because you haven't given a reason for them to trust you. So like Christ before him, Philip witnessed the needs of the people and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he acted in such a way as to meet those needs and show the power of God's Holy Spirit. This experience was revolutionary to the Samaritans. They believed. They repented. They got baptized as a sign of showing that they had accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and they wanted to get rid of that old sinful nature. But what happens when you have one celebrity, quote-unquote celebrity, who then loses followers 
when someone new shows up out of the blue and begins building a following. They get curious and they get jealous. In Simon's case, he probably wanted to know who this Philip guy was and what he was all about. So put yourselves in Simon's shoes. You've been the guy, and now someone is diverting your crowds of followers away from you. You've lost popularity. If I were in his place, I'd want to know what this newbie is preaching. In fact, that's exactly what Simon does. In Luke's account of Acts chapter 8, he says that Simon began following Philip everywhere and listening intently to what the apostle was saying to the people. The Bible says he even became baptized in faith as a Christian. Now, in truth, however, Simon was still very pagan at heart. See, the best magicians always live out their trick, especially in public. And like any good magician, Simon lived his trick. He embedded himself in the crowds following Philip because he wanted to learn how to do what Philip was doing. But he couldn't figure it out. It took the arrival of Peter and John to really accelerate Simon's scheming. When they showed up, doing just as Philip had been doing, and laying their hands upon the believers to bestow the Holy Spirit on them, he desperately wanted to know how this was done. And now in in more recent times, stage magicians have had habits of keeping long-held grudges with their rivals, always trying to outdo one another. Sometimes they'll even go so far as to negotiate the purchase of a complete trick and buy out their competition. In great illusionist tradition, Simon attempts to do just that and gets rebuked by Peter. Even how he responds shows us where Simon's heart truly was. He says, hey, let me buy this trick from you so that I can make a great name for myself. And Peter's rebuke was, is classic. You can tell that Peter has really matured in his, in his walk with the Lord at this point. Because Peter's rebuke instructed Simon to pray to God. But Simon responds with, How about you pray for me so that these things that you've said might not happen? He didn't truly believe. Because if he, had, because if he did, he would be praying. And, but even in this case, his prayer would only have been to save his own skin and whatever wealth he had at the time. He doesn't truly believe. There's no repentance in his heart. So what does this have to do with us here today? As I said before, many of us, especially in the modern era, we are constantly looking for a way to figure out the trick. Were there wires involved? Tricked mirrors? Tricked out card decks? Trapped doors? We've taken the fun and mystery of magic out of magic. If you do a YouTube or a Google search for magic tricks, you'll get a variety of websites and videos displaying how-tos of each of the illusions uh, that can be performed out there, for the most part. Usually, most of them are card tricks or some kind of sleight of hand. Our understanding of the things of God has, has become so disenfranchised that we aren't even looking at the true meaning behind the miracles that we read about in the Bible. When Jesus performed his various miracles, he wasn't doing them to make people follow him or to fool them. He saw needs that hadn't been met, like the faith healings or the exorcisms. 
Those were opportunities where he could do some real good in the world and bring people who had been truly lost because of sin back to himself. Calming the sea from the boat, walking on water, turning water into wine. Those reflected God's omnipotence over nature. I was on Twitter the other day and I, uh, I saw a post about uh, you know, what you would do if you had the ability to turn water into wine or transform water into some other substance. And it sounded really, uh, I mean, I, I understand the purpose behind it. It was, it was meant to be thought-provoking. But, my, but I initially looked at it the same way that I think Peter or John or Philip would have looked at it. It's a little blasphemous to have that kind of, a, of an ability. So my response was, ice. I'd turn water into ice. <laughs> you know, I'd stick the water in the freezer, let it freeze. But see, when we hear the word miracle, especially in our modern context, we immediately think of some kind of magic trick performed by a rabbi who was crucified and resurrected more than 2,000 years ago. Miracles don't just show up in the New Testament. They showed up in the Old Testament too. The parting of the Red Sea is a grandiose example. But we forget that it was a miracle. God was showing His divine power over all creation throughout the Exodus narrative. From Pharaoh's daughter being willing to not hand Moses over to her father to be killed like all the other Hebrew boys his age, to the burning bush, the ten plagues, even providing food for the Israelites in the form of quail and manna out in the wilderness. And what about following through on his promises? I said in my, in my prayer uh, episode that uh, I said in my prayer episode that you know sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no. More than likely, He's saying, "Hold on, wait, just be patient." But God follows through on His promises. God made several promises throughout Genesis. He promised Abraham that his descendants would be numerous and would inherit the land of Canaan. They did. He promised Abraham's grandson Judah that an amazing king would descend from his lineage. God gave us Jesus Christ. Those upheld promises are miracles, especially when you take into the account that we don't deserve the grace and mercy God offered us through Jesus. Even the life we have, the breath in our lungs, is a miracle. I go to bed every night. I have no idea if I'm waking up the next morning. God's got control of that. I don't. In fact, all of life on earth is a galactically enormous Miracle. Did you know that if our planet was even a fraction of an inch askew from its alignment with the sun, all life on earth would cease to exist? Think about that for just a moment. Talk about miraculous. For me, the biggest miracle that I've ever seen was God's answer to prayer in the form of my son. My wife and I, for the first 
uh, year and a half of marriage, we were, we were trying to conceive and we were having a very difficult time. We were stressing ourselves out. And we got worried that it might never happen. My wife got really down about it. But I knew, I knew it was going to happen. We just had to be patient. We just had to wait. We just had to trust God. Every morning as I got up to go to work, every morning as I... uh, you know, prepared myself. My prayer was that God would answer my wife's desire to have a child. And about three months before our second anniversary, we found out she was expecting. And from that point on, my prayer transformed from God answered my wife's prayer to God, I pray for my son or my daughter. It turned out to be a son. But I prayed for that child that he, would, that he or she would be healthy, that he or she would uh, be good. Whatever, whatever circumstances that we were going to deal with, I prayed that God would give us the ability, the strength, the fortitude to be able to uh, to love and parent that child to the best of our abilities. God has answered that prayer. But, and that was a miracle for me. But I think the biggest miracle of all is the change that can take place in our lives when we invite Jesus, the, the real Jesus, into our hearts as Lord and Savior when we repent of those sins that have kept us apart from God and we see real transformation take place. If we look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, the prophet chronicles his called service. He chronicles his called service. The first thing Isaiah does is he, he recognizes his own brokenness. He says his lips are unclean as those of everyone else in Jerusalem. When that happens, a a seraphim, an an angel of the Lord, flies over to him and touches his lips with a burning coal. Now, normally when you touch a coal, it leaves a mess from the soot that gets all over everything it touches. On top of that, uh, a burning coal is going to leave blistering and bruising and bleeding and pain. and It's just not pretty. But the picture that we're getting here is a paradox. God is taking something that usually makes you dirty and uses it to make Isaiah clean. That's the ultimate miracle of Christ. He chose to go out to sinners, the initial outreach ministry, and making physical contact with them. Now, under Jewish law, that would make him ceremonially unclean, unfit to stand in the presence of God. But see, that's the thing is that Jesus was God incarnate. He wasn't a God. He was the God. And his physical contact did not make him ceremonially unclean because God cannot be ceremonially unclean. He made those individuals spiritually purified. And that's where I want to leave you with this episode. 
A relationship with Jesus Christ is the start of the greatest transformative miracle this side of the resurrection. So I want to ask you, have you taken that step to accept the miracle by admitting where you might be missing the mark of God's righteousness so that he can apply that burning coal to purify you? Wherever we are in our walk with Christ, whether we're new Christians, whether we're veteran Christians, we're somewhere in the middle, I want to challenge all of us listening today to examine our walk of faith and move closer in that relationship to see the accomplishment of the miracle and to pay close attention to his teachings so that we can be effective witnesses for the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for all you do. Thank you for your miracles. The big ones and the ones that we don't even realize are happening. Lord, Lord, we admit that we are sinful people. We're not perfect. We need your transformation. We need your, your spiritual purification, Lord. While we are unclean to come into your presence, make us clean, as only you can. Lord, we ask in this time of need that um, as we are encountering a weakening economy, as we are encountering uh, the stress of, of joblessness, of unemployment, of, uh, and the hardships that it's creating, the, the claustrophobia and the and the cabin fear that comes with just being, you know, tucked away inside of our homes all day long. Lord, I pray that uh, I pray that you work in this situation. You already know the outcome. You already know how this is going to end, Lord. And we pray for your guidance and your direction for our president, for our lawmakers, for our governors, for our people, that this will end before it gets any worse. You're in control. You've shown us time and time again. And we yield these things to you. We lift all these things to you in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening.